following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Napa know-how. This month, get a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil plus a Napa platinum oil filter for $21.98. That's a pretty unbelievable deal. But trust us, it's totally real, but only for a limited time. So get Napa full synthetic and a Napa platinum oil filter for $21.98 today. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices do not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends for thirty nineteen. Yeah, I'd say we're, we're at probably the most pivotal shift in our industry since, I would say, the drive through was created. Um, there's there's never been more change happening faster and more importantly than the technology that has changed. So with Shake Shack, we created a community gathering place. And now we've got to say, you know what? Sometimes your community might be at your office. Sometimes it might be at your home. Sometimes it might be on your way to Shake Shack. So you got to pre-order on our app. So we are leading with technology right now. And what we think is the hospitality that we've always given in our Shack experience can actually be better if we do it in different ways that you want. So we're constantly saying wherever you want it, whenever you want it, however you want it, we're going to figure that out. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Today, we're treating you to two interviews. After you hear my conversation with Randy Garuti, the CEO of Shake Shack, you'll hear from my producer, Laurel Moglin, who sat down in L.A. with Aaron Minky, creator of the popular and spooky podcast, Lore, just in time for Halloween. Hey, everybody. On today's show, we have a tasty one for you. We have the CEO of Shake Shack, Randy Garuti. Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Happy to be here. This is great. So you make hamburgers and french fries and chicken sandwiches, stuff you can find on any corner of any town in the U.S. But if you go by a Shake Shack, you'll notice one thing besides the food is no matter what time you go, there's a massive line in terms of people are flocking to these stores. Why? What's going on? Boy, that's a tough one to answer, but I will take us back to our history. This company was born really in 1985 with Danny Meyer creating Union Square Cafe and saying to the world, you know what? Every restaurant at that time in New York that was good started with a le or a la, right? It was stuffy and French and formal. Mm -hmm. And Danny created a place where it could be great food, beautiful service, and just sincere hospitality. Years later, we're running fine dining restaurants on Madison Park, 11 Madison and Tabla. And that park had fallen into disrepair. We decided to help raise a little bit of money and we created a hot dog cart. It's a humble hot dog cart, sell a couple of hot dogs, raise a few bucks, and people lined up and lined up. Was it called uh, the Shake Cart? I don't even it? think it had a name. It was actually initially part of an art exhibit to turn around the park. And we sold Chicago style hot dogs. And at that time, New York hadn't really seen Chicago style hot dogs, year 2000. We raised a bunch of money for the park, and then in 04, the city came to us, and we won the bid to create this 400-square-foot kiosk called it Shake Shack. And I remember at those times, nobody had any idea what this was, and all of a sudden, people lined up for our burgers. So why? You know why? Because I think we humbly asked the rule, er, the question every single time, whoever wrote the rule, that traditional fast food has to be what it is. Mm. And we just tried to undo that. We said, you know what? Why did it become that it wasn't fresh or it wasn't good? And it all became about competing on price and not quality and not experience. And we, I think, gave the world back the experience of that old roadside burger stand that you love growing up. And we did it in a way that anybody could come there. It's the most democratic of places, the best ingredients, the most sincere hospitality, and the best experience. Yet, you can still get a $5 hamburger. 
and you can drink beers while you wait online. You can get a beer made by Brooklyn and some wine. And believe me, I got three kids. So the first thing I do when I go to Shake Shack, when my kids are screaming is get my beer. (laughs) (laughs) And you're all set. That's yeah. Shakes the kids. And then the parents get beer and everybody's happy. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Look, we're as surprised as anybody uh, that this whole story has played out where it is. We, we, we never wanted a second Shake Shack. We never dreamed there would be one. We were busy running New York's favorite fine dining company. And then we found a second nearly five years later when I was walking home one day. And we said, you know what? It's kind of irresponsible of us to not try this one more time. Then the second was busier than the first, and here we are today, 140 shacks as of last week. And uh, amazingly, we had an IPO a few years ago. None of this we ever dreamed, and here we are, uh, very comfortable with who we are today. Yeah, not many people go from a hot dog stand to an IPO um, in less than a decade. It's, it's wild. And, it's, it's, and the demand's funny. I remember that first place in Madison Square Park. It's still, I mean, we used, it's still popular as ever, and I remember I was a, uh, working in the New York Stock Exchange, and like the biggest hobby down there was sending clerks out to get like a massive amount of food and guys are pulling up not even it wasn't their app because this is back on the old laptops and pulling out the old ski slope style camera to check out the line at shake shack and send some you know 22 year old up there to place you know 100 hamburger order and then you know bring it all the way back down to the exchange but it was it took new york by storm it was like the thing to do you gotta go back in time think about this 2004 facebook is just born there's no such thing as an iphone and but it was the first time where a BlackBerry was a thing, right? So all of a sudden, you could stand online and be out of the office and nobody knew you were gone. Yeah. That was the first time that was happening. The birth of social media, all happening at this time when people know more about where their food's coming from. It's the food network generation, right? We all of a sudden, we know it, we want to know it, and we require more. And the whole world of transparent business and, um, you know, do you share the ethos of the brands in which you associate was created during this time. And we said... All right, everybody wants to eat hamburgers. Let's do it in a way that we can feel really good about. So when you choose to eat that way, there's only one place you want to go, and it's mm-hmm. Shake Shack. And I think that's what that captured the hearts of the moment and continues today. Now, you are uh, a fine dining veteran. You've been with uh, Danny Meyer's group. Well, now you're the Shake Shack, but you know, still connected for almost 20 years. Um, did you start right on the Shake Shack project or was it something that you kind of evolved into as it got larger? Not at all. I, mean, I grew up uh, for, since I was 13 working in, in restaurants all over the country in, in Hawaii, Colorado, Seattle. I met Danny Meyer and came back 18 Are years ago. Are you from ago. Hawaii? Uh, no, I'm from New York actually, okay. but I never wanted to live here until I met a guy named Danny. Gotcha. And he changed my idea of what New York restaurants could be. So I came back when I was 24. I was uh, the general manager of a restaurant named Tabla. Uh, which was an amazing, cool Indian mm-hmm. restaurant with Chef Floyd Cardoz. We had a great time there for years. Uh, and then over the years, I did that. I ran Union Square Cafe, and then I was director of ops for our whole company when this goofy little hot dog cart happened. Yeah. Uh, and then when I found that second site, we said, you know what, let's let's see what we can be. And I remember going home that night, had a, about a five-second conversation with my wife saying, okay, I've got the best job in America. I oversee Danny Meyer's Fine Dining Restaurants, but I'm going to give that up and see if I could open a second burger joint. Um, and we talked about it, and it took zero time for my wife and I to decide that's what I wanted to do. How do you, ch- what's, what are the similarities and the differences of running, you know, Union Square Cafe um, versus the $5 roadside, uh, you know, joint, I guess. You it's know. a great question because, you know, I really do miss um, the fine dining business. I love learning deeply about food and wine and I love the shift. You know, there's something about working in restaurants that's, it's a noble profession. It's, it's a group of, it's a team. It's a esprit de corps that 
I have never found in any other industry that happens in the restaurant industry. And we love that. I miss that. Um, but then, you know what has been amazing about Shake Shack is our leaders, you could be 23, 24, and you immediately learn how to become an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You immediately know how to run an entire business within six months or a year. So our guys get to go really far in a really wide way. Uh, and that's the difference, I think. With fine dining, you go really deep in a smaller way. Uh, and I love both for different reasons. But my, my world today obviously evolved from restaurant guy to CEO of a public company, which is a totally different strategic mindset. Um, but I love the restaurant business, and I just I can't imagine what else I'd be doing. Well, I want to go back to that IPO you know, CEO from Restaurateur in a second. But when you were starting out making, you know, we're going to make fast food better. We're going to make a great hamburger. You have a clean slate. What do you, how did these burgers evolve? So yeah. What did you want to do? And like specifically like, okay, let's make an awesome burger. And there's so many different styles of burger. How did you guys settle on this Shake Shack thing? And what's the difference? Because it, it, in many ways, hamburgers can be commodity products, but then also every, every city has their best burger. And every, there's like the high-end chains, the low-end chains. How did you invent this Shake Burger? Well, so a lot of uh, the credit really goes to Danny, Richard Crane, who was the original partner, and, and a bunch of the people who were there creating this at the beginning. I, I think any great business starts with what is the problem in the world and how are we going to solve it and do it better than anyone else did it. So we said, well, why can't your beef be ground fresh from antibiotic, hormone-free beef the right way, cooked to order instead of sitting there, Right. Why don't we take some of the chocolates and the coffee and the things that we use in our highest fine dining restaurants and use them in a burger joint? Mm. Why don't we say, hey, when we build this place, let's make it comfortable and let's lessen our impact on the world and let's make our tables out of reclaimed bowling alleys, right? Let's make our lighting really good and not ask you to just leave. Let's find a way to ask you to stay. And in every way, we stripped down what the industry had built and said, how can we just do this different, do it better, and solve the problem? Um, And then we created this place that now go back to that age of social media, right? What do we need to do today? Everywhere we go, we got to share it with everyone we know and a million people we don't all the time, every second. What does that mean? We got to make decisions that are really, we're proud to share. And because of that, we're not going to go to places that we're not proud of because we got to share where we are. So yet we still really want a cheeseburger. So when we do that, it's got to be a good one. You want to stand out because a lot of these fast food restaurants were just focusing on, on cost and margins. And like you said, the, the, a Shake Shack burger is a little more expensive than you know, a, a big chain, but it's not like you're charging 20 bucks for a burger. So how do you kind of compete with the, those massive kind of industrial companies um, and have the best ingredients and treat your people well and pay them well and have it a lot cleaner? How do those economics work out? Well, you know what we do? We focus on the overall experience and the economics work out because we are so busy. Uh, what we've said is we're, gonna, we're not going to build this on margin. We're not going to build it on cost structure. We're going to build it on sales. And we're going to go do, you know, our, our, we're proud to say that our average unit volumes at Shake Shack are, uh, you know, among the best in our industry ever. And in, the, in this piece of our industry, we, we have some of the highest. So we do that by capturing the hearts of people and making sure they come back they bring their friends, and we just continue to grow this thing. And, and now, we're, now we're continuing to grow our market share in a totally different way. So it's a huge opportunity that we've got in front of us. I mean, we, we've barely gotten started at 140 shacks. How did you go from you know, you, the, the one Shake Shack in Madison Square Park to the second? What was your second location? Upper West Side. That was Upper the one West I found Side. walking home one yep. day with a little for rent sign. It's right by the uh, Museum of Natural History, right? And today is the ninth birthday of that restaurant, today. 
happy birthday, Upper West Side, it's everybody. It's a big deal. Um, how do you go from the kind of having a handful of stores to saying, you know what, guys, and like, and also you are also running these high end restaurants that you're you have you have really tough clientele, tough competition. How when did this become like a a couple stores to let's make this like a bigger thing? Yeah, the second shack opened in, in 2008. I don't think we realized until 2010 when we opened our first shack in Miami, which was the first thing we had ever done out of New York. Um, we did a deal to open in Dubai, and we opened in literally we opened in Dubai in 2011. And it was one of the busiest restaurants we ever built. And all of a sudden we said, oh my gosh, you know, I, th- I think we kind of have something here. We should get serious about this. So even then, you know, we might have been doing three or four restaurants a year. It wasn't to the extent of this year we're going to do 23, 24 shacks here and about 15 internationally. So a tremendous growth that we've gone through. We never, never, never planned on that. So it really wasn't until 2010, 2011 until we put our foot on the gas a little bit. And then it wasn't even long before after that before we said yeah let's really ramp this up um even then not dreaming we'd ever go public Mm -hmm. certainly as a company we just wanted to keep making people happy and and growing lines around the world do you and danny meyer kind of sit back and laugh at the success of this because for two decades you were you know chasing the michelin stars and the new york times you know reviews and all that stuff and now a lot of people outside of New York know this group from that, you know, beautiful but simple greasy burger, not the uh, 11 Madison Park kind of, you know, Michelin experience. Oh, I, think th- I think all of it together is what makes it special, right? I think what Danny continues to build and his leadership of Union Square Hospitality Group is essential to everything. I mean, it, he is, I believe, the most important restaurateur that's ever lived in the way that he's helped redefine so many things and continues to redefine our business. Um, but what we're doing with Shake Shack reaches a few more people. You know, we have the ability to really, um, on a mass appeal market, we sell the most appealing product in the world, the hamburger. I'm not sure there's anything else in the world that people can associate with more, right? When I go to a dinner party yeah. and there's a bunch of guys working in the finance world and they, they say what they do and then the conversation kind of stops and I say, well, I sell hamburgers. Everybody wants to talk because we all can associate with what it is. Why do people love hamburgers? I mean, I love them, but what is it that makes, it's one of those foods that kind of just makes people happy. There are some great books that you can read on this. One of them is A Hamburger History by Josh Zersky. It's the best book. Uh, and it talks about the hamburger began. The hamburger history. It, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I think it's called A Hamburger a, a History or something. Um, the hamburger began as the working man's food because there was no more effective way to feed you with good calories, a little bit of meat, and some bread mm-hmm. than the hamburger when it was created. And then, it, is, it, is know, it an American thing? Is it a British thing? Is it a European thing? I, I think everybody argues about where it's actually from. Yeah. You know, and then in America, where did it actually start? There's a lot of legends about where it started. I, I can't comment on who created it, but I will say, when you really look at the history, um, the mechanization of the fast food industry, what we know of as today, is sort of this process of feeding people. Mm-hmm was created really by White Castle and some of the early burger joints in the 20s and 30s. And then, of course, the credit goes to McDonald's for building the incredible company that they've built uh, over the years. So, you know, you look at it, I think it is is the perfect vehicle to feed yourself. The, so the, ham, the humble hamburger on a bun. It's a, you can't name anything else that's, that fits that, that category. So it's kind of like the blue jeans of food. That's it, it started that's out it. to be the, for the, the, worker, a lot the workers, so to speak, and now uh, it's the cool, hip thing. That's everyone's, right. Everyone's that's doing right. it. Um, in terms of, so you go to parties, everyone must, you know, you think you're <laughs> the biggest burger expert ever. Everyone's telling you their favorite thing, taking, giving you advice on what they should do. 
Well, yeah. Well, that's the, the other side of it, right? Everybody can touch it, so therefore there's a lot of opinions. And, and we've all had great burgers. And, and let's be clear, Shake Shack did not invent the hamburger, yeah. and we won't be the last ones to make a great one. We say that all the time. Um, we do not take for granted the fact that our teams want to work with us and our guests want to go there. So we're constantly trying to reinvent it, and we're listeners. We are listeners to our guests. So if I'm at that party or anyone, I just stopped by to bring you some burgers on the way here. The first thing I did when I walked in is I grabbed about five people, guests, and I said, how was your experience? How, how's the food? How was that kiosk that you just ordered on? Because I am a listener, and I constantly want to hear what our guests really think. And the good news, everyone listening, if you ever in, invite um, Randy to anything, like he shows up with just bags of hamburgers. That's and, true. And, ch- and chicken sandwich. What do you call the chicken ones? The chicken shack. Chicken shack. It's uh, we're putting on the on the calories today here at the, on the podcast. In terms of you, you, you mentioned how you know White Castle and McDonald's revolutionized kind of burgers and fast food in America. And we were talking before about uh, that great Michael Keaton film, The Founder. And there's a scene um, where they kind of take, go to a tennis court with chalk and they lay out a fake um, kitchen to make sure that the workflow and it's efficient as possible. Um, you know, technology is a really big part of Shake Shack now. And I know you guys are working on some kind of cool ideas. Like what is, what do you do first consumer facing? And, um, and then what do you do actually behind the scenes to, you know, keep the food as fresh as possible and also keep the margins high? Yeah, I'd say we're, we're at probably the most pivotal shift in our industry since I would say the drive through was created. Um, there's, there's never been more change happening faster and more importantly than the technology that has changed. So with Shake Shack, we created a community gathering place. And now we've got to say, you know what? Sometimes your community might be at your office. Sometimes it might be at your home. Sometimes it might be on your way to Shake Shack. So you've got to pre-order on our app. So we are leading with technology right now. And what we think is the hospitality that we've always given in our Shack experience can actually be better if we do it in different ways that you want. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly saying wherever you want it, whenever you want it, however you want it, we're going to figure that out. So the busy, biggest examples are our newest shack out in Astor Place here in New York City. Um, we're having a ton of time. We took away cash. We took away cashiers. Um, we're paying our team $15 an hour as a starting wage. And now everyone that comes in and experiences that restaurant, they're doing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I've been amazed every time I go where I just was asking people, how do they like it? Is it... Is it hard? Is it weird? And people love it because it's on their terms. It puts the power of their experience in their own hands. And I think we take that for granted. And we, we don't realize how many ways in life we're actually moving to that kind of experience. Can you walk me through the process? So if I go to, from, from, from order to eating, if I go to this new Astor place, kind of your, pop, your experimental shop, how, how does the process work? Well, there's two ways. The way you should do it, the easiest way is on your way or sitting here right now, go uh-huh. on the Shack app, order and name whatever time you want to pick up your food. You want to pick it up on your way home before you're hitting the, see the kids, hit six o'clock, and then you show up at six o'clock, your food's ready, you walk out or you stay. Mm-hmm. That's one way. The second way now, if you go, if you want to be in the Shack, uh, we've got these kiosks. So you go up and it, it's like a typical ordering kiosk. We created it own custom ourselves. They're big, beautiful iPad Pro. Uh, great technology and great experience that we all did. And you go up there and one of our team members greets you and it's, Hey, let me show you how to use this. Uh-huh. I need some help. Most people are like, no, I got it. It's pretty easy. Um, and then they go ahead and they order and you know, between five and 10 minutes later, your food's ready. And we cut out a lot of that friction um, that exists in the current experience. Now, again, it's way early. There's only been a few weeks. We don't know how um, our, all of our guests are going to feel about it, but 
we're really bullish on the opportunity and, and mostly just about finding new ways, new tools where our team can provide hospitality. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and it seems like a good idea to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes for 10% off. In, in terms of kitchen technology, any changes there? Not, not really. I mean, look, a lot of, you see a lot of things and you hear a lot of things. Oh, people are going to start cooking uh, burgers with robots or whatever. <laughs> you know, it, it still takes full hearts and full hands yeah. to prepare food in the way that we do, to order uh, in the freshest way. We're not pre-cooking anything. Everything we do is to order, and that takes a lot of people. So technology for us is really about how we move food, not really how we cook it. So we want to continue to get better and better about how the order comes in. And then when it gets in, we're going to cook it the same way we always have since day one. Mm-hmm. Spin that shake by hand every time and then find a better way that's a little bit faster to get it to you. So you're, the friction that you feel is less and you can experience shack however you want. In terms of people, uh, in terms of everyone working in the kitchen, you, fast food has tend to be a kind of a lot of churn. People are coming and going very quickly, a transient workforce, so to speak. Um, is that the case with Shake Shack and how do you kind of keep, um, everyone kind of putting the care and motivation into, into a job that usually is, you know, people kind of ditch it pretty quick. Yeah. Look, I've, as I said, I've been working in restaurants my whole life and working in restaurants is hard work. It is real work. And there's a lot of easier things you can do with your life. Um, so there's always going to be a natural higher turnover in our industry than others. What we're incredibly proud of and what we call leaders training future leaders is that the minute you started our restaurant, we're telling you we want to get you out of the job you're in. Mm-hmm. We want you to grow. We have so many examples in our company of people who started making eight, nine, 10, 12 bucks an hour, and they're now making six figures, leading regions. You know, people who started when they were young and now they've got families and houses and they're taking over big parts of our company. That is the best thing we can do. And what we do well is show you a clear path to develop yourself. Mm-hmm. Whether this is your first job ever and you want it for six months, we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can while you're there. Or if you really want this to be a career choice like I did, um, we're going to have the stepping stones and the support to get people to grow. And, and that's probably the thing we're most proud of, of all the things we do. And speaking of kind of growth, let's jump to uh, you know, store growth. So 144 stores. How do you pick your locations? Because you always, I remember you, you find Shake Shacks in surprisingly good locations. Like there's not one, but there's two in, in JFK Airport in the city. And you're going to, you know, people are, are, get so excited when they see a Shake Shack because they expect to find some kind of, you know, standard airplane food and, and, and they get excited. When City Field opened, people, it was sexy that there was a Shake Shack in City Field for the, for the Mets. Still like, is. If, we're, yeah. if, if they were in the playoffs, we'd, we'd be selling a lot of burgers out there. <laughs> but how does, so when you, and you mentioned before you're opening in San Diego for the first time. So how do you, A, choose a city and then how do you choose the spot in the city? So it's got, it's a confluence of things. If we've done our job, wherever that shack goes, it becomes the community gathering place of its hometown. Okay, that's number one. When we do it, if we've done it successfully, it also is a mirror of its community. And that means everyone is designed a little differently. You know, we're not, we're not building templates. We're not stamping out restaurants mm-hmm. here. We are building really cool, well-designed spaces that people want to hang out in. And we want to do it, to your question, at the places where there's a beehive of activity, where people from every walk of life, I don't care what income, what, where you are from, what your political leanings are, you come to Shake Shack and you can afford it, you can eat there and you can make it either, you know, kind of your, your, your normal everyday or a special thing. You can take a date there, you could take your mom there, you could take your kids there. Mm-hmm. 
And we want to be in those places, whether whatever city it is, um, where that's kind of the main on main location and, and make it really special place. Give me some examples. Boy, so many. I mean, you look at, uh, you look at our spot in, in West Hollywood, our first one in LA that we opened up last year, the heart of West Hollywood. It is a freestanding building. We built this really amazing outdoor indoor area. And that is absolutely a, muni- uh, a mirror of its community. Everything we've done in here in New York, go down to Dumbo out in the water in Brooklyn. We're right on the corner, right on the water. We did this nautical theme mm-hmm. in that design. Um, go to Tokyo, and we're in a park that's called Guyane, and it's representative of the original shack in Madison Square Park. Or in Korea, Gangnam, right in the heart of Gangnam. Um, and each time we make it so you want to be there. You know, you want to experience it. And then we happen to have some really good hamburgers and some incredibly sincere people. Are you in like suburban America? We are, yeah. You know, king of Prussia. And, yeah. so, but you uh, choose big kind of big malls or big city centers to, to go? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, about a third of our development will be urban. Mm-hmm. About a third will be uh, what we would call shopping lifestyle centers. Sometimes that might be a traditional mall. Sometimes it might be a new kind of cool outdoor lifestyle center. And sometimes that might be a pad site that we build a freestanding shack just kind of along the roadside. And, and what you'll see there, it's, it's totally different vibe, right? In mm-hmm. New York city, you will get, you know, the little league team rolling up yeah. after the game, you'll get, um, you know, kids from the local high school breaking up over a milkshake in the afternoon. You know, you get a little bit of everything in there and that's, that's what it is when it's at its best. It is. Everybody is at shake shack. Mm-hmm. You can look around and see the diversity and it, that's what makes it so cool. And you mentioned, you know, you spent, your, your background is in, in restaurants and you spent years you know, managing and working in a handful of very high-end restaurants. And now you are the CEO of a public company and you just mentioned before you have spots in Dubai and Tokyo and Korea. How do you manage all that? Or how does your team manage all that? Because it's not like you're some uh, you know, former consultant or uh, MBA that you know, is used to international global expansion and you know, dealing with investors and stockholders and analysts. Like, that's a great big jump. How did you deal with that? Yeah, I've had to learn a lot. You know, I didn't grow up uh, imagining I'd be a public company CEO, and I've had to learn a lot about public markets, a lot about taking care of our shareholders, um, how to share our story with the market, um, with our investors. And that's part of it that, that I really intellectually enjoy and have loved as part of this process. Uh, I'm a learner. I'm constantly trying to be better than I was yesterday, and I'm taking that on. But I think mm-hmm. the real answer to your question is I am surround myself with incredible human beings, and together we do it. Uh, you know, we have an incredible team, some of which has been here with me since the beginning, since mm-hmm. the first burger, and some of which has just come in with incredible perspective of much bigger and different companies. And together we sit around our leadership table and we figure it out. And we remember one thing. We exist to take care of the people who are selling burgers today. Mm-hmm. And every decision at our restaurant and our office, for me as the CEO, has got to come down to the people who are out there working in our restaurants so hard every day to take care of the guests that are walking in and our communities. And, and that's it. What's been kind of the hardest of the many new things you've had to face in the last couple of years, what's been the hardest either area or topic or what are you, what are you seeing? I think the hardest thing is, is the new requirements on time. When you think about it, I probably spend somewhere between, you know, 30, 40% of my time being public, right? Spending time with our shareholders, is infinitely important part of my job. Um, but during that time, I'm not working on the company, yeah. right? Um, so that's you're probably t- you're the talking to an annoying podcast interviewers like me. So here I am doing podcast. Sorry, shareholders. Sorry. <laughs> but here's what I do during that time. Um, 
I'm always learning something from it, either from a question you're going to ask me or a question a shareholder's asked me where I can say, you know what, I can either use that time to say, ah, uh, I shouldn't be here right now. I should really be being a CEO and be out here. Or I can use that time and say, you know something, that person asked me a question in a different way than I've ever thought about it. I better think about that sometimes. That's not always the case, but mm-hmm. often it is. And often I come back and I say, you know something, guys, I want to think about this piece of our business a little bit differently. And that, that's the plus side of the hardest part of the job, which mm-hmm. is just this new creation of time requirements we have as a public company. Well, now you're putting the pressure on me to ask like a really, really out there question. Kieran, I'm going to need some notes here. Um, in, in terms of, um, let's talk about food for a second. You know, food tastes are, is, are always changing. What was good for you yesterday is bad for you today and vice versa. This will kill you. The same thing will add 10 years to your life. Um, and there's been so many, you know, the last couple of years, I, I think with all these different, whether you're vegan or paleo or gluten-free and all these certain things. Do you look at that or is Shake Shack like it's a treat and people who want it are going to have it and you just kind of, you don't care about all those different fads or nutrition or that kind of thing? Well, I don't think, I don't think there will ever be a difference between now and 20 years ago or 20 years from now in terms of fads of diet and the way we think about food. There will be things that we believe are great and, and then not, you know. Um, I think people will always continue to eat the humble hamburger. So when they do, they should have a good one that they know the ingredients they're putting in their body are really good. And the ingredients they're feeding their children and friends are really good. That's where we come in. We say, you shouldn't eat a hamburger every day, but when you do, have a shack burger because yeah. it's really good and you should feel good about it. That said, we're also constantly listening to our, our guests and saying, you know what? Are you asking for chicken? It turns out they were. So we added chicken and became a huge part of our menu, top mm-hmm. five seller. What else are they asking for? We, we are constantly thinking about um, different ways to think about our menu without changing the core of who we are. At the end of the day, we sell burgers, fries, and shakes. Yeah. We do some other things, but that's about that's that's the core of our business. Well, I believe we'll always be that, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't experiment and try some things that might have people come back more often or might have people who don't come at all come for the first time. Um, and and we're, we're constantly testing and playing around with that kind of stuff in our test kitchen. What have you tried that didn't work out? <laughs> well... A lot. I could, we could spend the rest of this. I'll tell you one that did work out that you wouldn't believe. And this is just a fun story. One day, uh, one of our team members said, have you ever tried a burger with peanut butter on it? I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I ever <laughs> heard. And then I ate it. And it's really good. And that next week, we did. We launched the peanut butter bacon burger for one day. Sold out within the first couple hours. What is it? Just a hamburger with peanut butter on it? And bacon. It's really you good. Just like spread it on the bun? It's really good. Yeah. And that sounds a little crazy. And it is. And that's just a far off one. But... Um, there's a lot. I think the biggest thing I would tell you that we tried that didn't work, this is the biggest story we have. Um, one day we took our classic crinkle cut fries mm-hmm. and we decided they should be fresh cut in-house. And we made, we spent a year and millions of dollars converting our whole restaurant away from the frozen crinkle cut fries we had into a fresh cut. And everyone hated it. Just a taste? Everything. Wait. And they were the best fresh cut fry. But what we didn't do a good job is listening at the time to say, you know, it turns out people really like our crinkle cut fries and they weren't asking for us to change. Mm-hmm. We just kind of thought we changed because we're the, we're the Shake Shack company. We got to have the best thing ever. And when we did that, people didn't like it very much. And we, we kind of fought back for about six months. We, you know, we kept telling people, hang in there. You know, we're, we're, this is good. This is good. I promise yeah. you're going to like it. Just keep trying them. And turns out we didn't win that one. And what was great about the process, we were able to look ourselves in the eye and say, we didn't really listen well. We shouldn't have changed this. And when it comes back, we're going to take away the things that we never liked about our fries anyway. 
um, at the time, there was some uh, preservatives and, and colors and things in the fry. So we were able to remove all that and have an all-natural fry. That happens to be frozen. Mm-hmm. Turns out frozen fries are a lot better than fresh fries, in our opinion. Yeah, it's funny. it's like the uh, it's it, it's a good lesson right there that if you have you can experiment all you want, but keep the uh, the core anchor anchor products the same. Yeah, you got it's such an important business. What is the thing that got you here? Yeah, that should not change. It needs to evolve. Everything needs to evolve. But when you can identify the core of the thing that got you here. You, you really, I don't believe you ever change that in your business. Yeah, it's like I'm when I go to the West Coast, you know, I will stop by an In and Out Burger as me the, too. It's amazing. First thing I'll do. But and they have the fresh cut fries. They're fun to watch them make them. But you know what? They don't taste as good as a as a frozen fry. Well, we like our fries, so can't comment on those guys. But uh, what are you working on? Are there any anything cool test kitchen you're thinking about? coming up yeah we're gonna we are just about to launch our newest um limited time offer that we're going to do an incredible meat chili and you're gonna be able to get chili burgers chili dogs and chili cheese fries uh and it's really good we did all meat all natural really beautiful fun chili that's gonna launch in at the end of october can i get a bowl of chili too you can and everyone has that so i am dying to see how many bowls of chili we're gonna sell because (laughs) it's it's amazing yeah we we, we've had a lot of fun developing that we're gonna do that for a little while and uh, i think it'll just be a fun thing a little bit different for people a little bit spicy chili on the uh, on the show previously we had a, a a ceo making um you know uh Meatless burgers, kind of vegetable protein sort of things. Have you have you tried any of those or played around with that? Yeah, we've gotten we've gotten to know those guys real well. I have a ton of respect for the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Meat. Beyond, and yeah, Beyond Meat. Yeah. And, um, it's amazing. It's incredible science what they're doing. Um, we've decided it's not for us today, but we never say never. Who knows? You know, I I think as we think about who we are, um, that hasn't fit into it just yet. But we we do want to keep finding ways through chicken and other things that people can continue to come back to Shake Shack more and more often. And now that you're a public company CEO, obviously investors, is the mantra now just growth, growth, growth? Is that what you're focusing on? I don't think so. I think, look, if you're doing your job, I think as a CEO today, you are communicating what you believe your company should be doing Mm -hmm. um, and making sure the investors around you are signed up for that vision. Uh, what we do is there's an appropriate amount of growth. We should grow. We absolutely are a great company. Forget about being a public or private company. We're a great company. We should grow more Shake Shacks because when we do, we make a lot of money. Yeah. So let's do more of them. But let's do that in the right way that takes the overall context of our company and does it right. And don't, you know, when we talk about how many Shacks there will be next year, we're not doing it for Wall Street. We're doing it for ourselves and we're doing it for our team to make sure that we have the right amount of leaders in place. We've got the right type of site so that you continue to say, wow, I'm always amazed every time I see your sites yeah. and, and our team can grow into it. So when we do that, well, uh, there's going to be a lot, a lot of growth ahead for our company. And this was create Shake Shack was created as an antidote from the giant burger chains. Now you've become a giant burger chain. How do you keep on growing and keeping at the same time, the soul of the company that started as that little you know, shack in Madison Park. Well, on my uh, on my wall that I stare at all day long, there's a little sign that says, "The bigger we get, the smaller we have to act." Um, size is not a four letter word, right? Um, chain shouldn't be a four letter word. Mm-hmm. Chain can be a great word when every time you add a link, the rest of the chain gets stronger, not weaker, and that's how we see it. So we we're going to open more restaurants because in the process, our current restaurants need to get better. You know, we're going to hire more leaders so that mm-hmm. in the process, our current leaders get better. And I think if we continue to think that way and make small decisions each time that that check and that piece of the business is the only thing that matters, 
And then that will ultimately contribute to a much greater chain. Uh, we think we were, we're off to the races on doing that. Even just outside of Shake Shack, what is exciting to you right now? And what do you predict? You know, I, I think the continued evolution of people caring about where their food comes from and requiring better ingredients uh, is really exciting to watch. I think uh, the best of the best fine dining is really exciting to watch. When you look at people like 11 Madison Park, and we mm-hmm. no longer own that restaurant. You know, that's Will and Daniel who own that restaurant are doing just constantly innovative things, thinking about pushing food to new heights. Uh, we're super inspired by that, and we're super inspired by the guys who are doing things on scale that are really interesting. Um, Any examples of kind of... I love yeah. the companies like Sweetgreen. You know, mm-hmm. outside of our restaurant, I love... Yesterday, we were with our friends at Warby Parker. Yep. Um, I love SoulCycle, right? There's a there's a handful of brands like that. Yeah, we've, that had, we've had uh, Neil on the show, and we've had uh, Melanie on the show, so it's, it's, it's incredible. These, these brands that they're competing against like not commodity product, but they're everywhere. And then, I mean, yeah, sweet. If you walk by a sweet greens, it is, if you walk by after six o'clock in the city, it is a party and there's a line at the door and there's other salad, salad shops right around it. And it's, they're doing okay. But Shake Shack, everyone's in their worker clothes and they're just waiting online. It's, yeah. It's and, and those brands that you just named, they connect with people. They connect with people deeply in a way that I need those things. You know, I am proud to walk away with a Warby Parker bag. I am proud to know that this morning I went to SoulCycle, right? Like it changes my life. It's a brand that means something. And, you know, the way we talk about it is if that brand disappeared, would people matter? Would people care, right? And when you name brands like that, people would care. Mm-hmm. Their lives would be changed. And that's the kind of company we want to be. I think you should put a Shake Shack kiosk in a SoulCycle. <laughs> we can just order there. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, you know, it keeps it. You keep I'll call on, Melanie. Yeah. It's good. It's integrated, integrated, uh, vertical integration there. You got supply and demand. You're, you'll be all set. Deal. There's some good me- medical marijuana um, licensees we can do, do too. <laughs> well, we're opening in Denver next year. Oh, so that might be gangbusters right there. <laughs> um, any food trends you're seeing? I think, uh, in terms of like, what's the next big thing? Uh, that's so hard. Well, I think the next big thing is technology and food mm-hmm. and the way that you're going to access your food is going to be different. I think my kids are probably not going to go to grocery stores um, and they'll look at us and say, wait a second, you used to have wheel a cart around this huge place. You used to take that stuff, put it out on some conveyor belt, talk to a person, pay a person, put that stuff back on the conveyor belt, put it in your car. Then you'd actually go home, dad. You, you wait, you had to prep that food. You had to eat it. Then you had to clean it up. I believe my kids will see things like that as archaic. And I think they'll say, hey, I want great food Mm -hmm. that I know every single thing about. I want it cooked for me. I want it right here. And I want it in the next couple hours. And I believe our generation, the next generation, will have that. So I think the companies that continue to do that will be better than ever. But again, remember what I started this whole thing with. Those that also have a great brand and also have an incredible experience that you can go to. You know, I don't believe the American mall is going to die, right? Mm-hmm. I think the best brands will thrive in experiential retail. Um, and then they will also find ways to connect with you when you don't want to chop that way. Well, that was a great show. We had Randy Garuti, the CEO of Shake Shack, who's shaking up what we think fast food is. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, dude. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Equifax breach that impacted roughly 143 million consumers just got bigger. They've now added 2.5 million people to that list. If that's not bad enough, Yahoo announced that their 2013 breach impacted all 3 billion user accounts, triple the original estimate. You should know. 
Once your personal information has been exposed, it doesn't just go away. Identity thieves can buy your info on the dark web for months, even years after a breach. They can use it to commit crimes in your name, even steal from your 401k. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Now playing on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. The most pressing national security concern is international terrorism on our soil. An exclusive interview with Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department. We have 115,000 employees and tens of thousands of contractors. A key topic? The investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. If anybody interferes with our elections, no matter who it may be, I think it's appropriate for us to take action. And elections are just the beginning. Cyber threats aren't just about elections. Cyber threats are about commercial activities, electric grids, and computer networks. He digs into the opioid epidemic. Fentanyl is responsible for a surge in drug overdose deaths in the United States. The full interview, available right now on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. You can find us exclusively at podcastone.com or on the new Podcast One app. And don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details. U.S. only. Today we have a very special guest. A guest that writes and retells spooky stories for a living. It's Aaron Mankey, a novelist and the podcast producer of the hit podcast, Lore. He's also the executive producer. Is that correct? Co-executive producer. Co-executive producer of the TV show, Lore, that just launched fittingly on Friday the 13th on Amazon Prime. So um, it, it's especially a creepy month this October. It is. <laughs> um, um, thanks for coming into the studio for Forbes interview. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So I, I looked up the definition of lore in the, in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. Basically what it says is that it's something taught, a lesson, but then mm-hmm. it's also this particular body of, 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 of knowledge or tradition. I never really knew that perhaps that, that it was something that's taught because I feel like with your show – that is exactly what's happening in in its ideal episode, right? Not only are you hearing this wonderful story, right, but you might be able to contextualize it in modern day, yeah, or personal life. Yeah, I mean, I could answer that and push us an hour into the conversation Go. at this point. I mean, do it. Folklore is, I mean, it's all about story, and story is this archaic thing that we've done for as long as humans have been able to communicate. I mean. Along along the way, we've done it around the fire. You know, we've sat around the radio on the floor, um, the television and movies. And something about the cell phone and podcast has brought us kind of back to the, at least to the radio age, if not to that fireside age where we sit around and tell each other stories. It's just the the glow of the screen and there's a voice on there telling us a story. But but folklore and these stories are there to teach our children lessons they need to handle life better. It's there to warn us about how to behave or how not to behave. Um, stories are there to capture 
important memories and help us hold on to them. So story is, lore has that teaching uh, element to it, you know? And so when I do an episode on any particular topic, the, the story is the core of it, but you do have to step aside and say, but what does this story tell us about ourselves, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what story is. Story is a deeply uh, relational, intimate thing for us. So what does it tell us about ourselves? You have how many episodes now? It's over 70 episodes at this point. 71 came out today. Okay, 71 came out today. As you have been reading and researching and diving into these things, are there any themes that have come up to you or lessons learned um, from the shows you've been producing? I often describe lore to people as a podcast about dark history. You know, so the theme that pops up most common across them, not all of them, but most of them, is this idea of the other, that no matter what century we're talking about or what culture we're talking about, there is an other that that society projects upon, whether it's their hatred or their fear. Um, you know, and a good example was two weeks ago, episode 70, it was called Familiar, and it's uh, the story about a man named Matthew Hopkins who was you know, in the English Civil War, kind of labeled himself the Witchfinder General. And his his job was just going around and um, executing witches. And he killed more men and women in his year and a half uh, in activity than in the century before. I mean, he was a bloody man, right? And he what fueled him in all of this effort was his hatred of what he saw as religious heretics. And, you know, they were witches. And so they were hanged. And, um, and we still do that in our society today. I mean, you take that, that modernization of the story and you look at even something that's not a, a folklore. It's not a story about, you know, elves or goblins, but it's, it's, a, it's a thing that happened in the past. And you, you look at it and say, 400 years is a long time. We've gotten better. You know, we don't hang witches anymore, but we, we kind of still do, right? We just, we just use a different thing than rope. People dox people now, you know, they, they threaten them in different ways. Um, we use economics to, you know, ostracize and, and hang in a sense, um, people who are others in society and hatred is the fuel of it all. It still happens. I don't go into the episodes with an agenda, you know, to, to preach in some sense. Do you specifically avoid going left or right or, or making, yes, you do. You I do. do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, just like I avoid coming down on the, you know, do I believe this or not believe this? Mm-hmm. Because part of the power of story is, is the unanswered questions and, the fact that each person who hears a story can can decide for themselves whether what they're hearing is true or not. And I don't want to be the person who takes that power away. I want to let that story just be. Yes. I just wanted to go back to, to that um, episode 70 for a second because mm-hmm. I thought what was really, you know, yes, these people were, were hung, but they were tortured <laughs> before that happened, psychologically yeah. and physically tortured before Absolutely. that happened. So the trial of being a witch or being accused of a witch, witch was a long Oh yeah, I mean, process. They they did things like they they would they would strip. I mean, it was typically a woman, but but I often hear online that you know it was always women who were persecuted, and it wasn't. There were men in there too, and uh, but it was primarily women because again they were second class citizens compared to men, and they were an easier target. But some men became targets too. But they would strip a woman completely naked and search her for what they called witch marks or devil's marks, which were described as maybe slightly raised, raised bumps that were brown. I mean, who doesn't have a mole on their body somewhere, right? So it became this really easy way to say... And, and, and Hopkins had a team of women who traveled with him. Oh. 
And they would take the, the accused into a room and they would do this. They would inspect for witches marks and they would always find something. How do you not find a birthmark or a mole or whatever, you know, a, a freckle at, at least. So, um, yeah. And then, and then you would just kind of wait for them to confess. And if they didn't, you would just continue to wait and you deprive them of sleep and food until they were so broken down psychologically that of course they're going to say things. And the stories that came out of them were absolutely crazy. They made a lot of money doing this. They did. The, the communities would pull together money and pay them to come in and do it. And money always clouds it, right? It clouds the, the intentions and the sure. motivation. Um, Hopkins was a lot more likely to just swing into a local town because, hey, I'm going to make some money here. Um, and later on, what would happen is that these communities began to catch on that, oh, we've got somebody in town who we, we'd actually like to get rid of, you know, a, a cranky minister or somebody who isn't very religious, but they own property that's very key to the future of the, of the community. And they would, you know, essentially throw them under the bus and have them accused and have it taken care of. And so, yeah, um, it, it also cost the communities a lot of money. And that, that was one of the things that kind of drove his activity to a closure at the end of the year and a half because he, he was expensive, right? You know, it was, it was a lot of money. It was thousands of dollars in today's money. Um, and then the cost of the execution and all the things that had to go into that, um, it was a lot to keep up with. What he represented was was a hysteria. And we're going to get into some more witches later. Absolutely. Let's go back just a little bit. When – I have read about this, but I want you to tell the audience how you came up with the idea for the podcast because you kind of fell into it. It was sort of like an idea. So I spent um, almost a decade working as a freelance graphic designer. And freelance work is great. You work for yourself. I worked from home. As a designer, I would sit at the desk for most of my day, uh, headphones on, listening to an audiobook. I did a lot of annual reports and large documents. And in the evenings, I would sit down at the table after the kids had gone to bed and the night was calm and I would write. I, I've written since fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And it just I love, I love spooky stories, things with a supernatural element, historical elements. And I was writing and self-publishing my own novels. And to prepare for novels, I would do a lot of research. I live in New England and New England's this, you know, people have been there for over 400 years and it's deeply historical and there's a lot of story. And so I would dig into neat historical tales that had a weird bent to them that I would work into the novels. I'd I'd weave them into the plot somehow, whether it was referenced by a character or it was a key element. But I would only only use one or two of the things, and I have a dozen of them left over. And I use Evernote, and I tuck things into a folder, right? And it's just there. And uh, the design business began to to slowly tank in the fall of 2014. Mm. And I was looking for... I needed to earn money to pay the bills, uh, and I knew that I was going to have to take on another job, and that was going to take more of my time. And here I was writing every evening, and uh, I had to justify the time I was spending on books that weren't, you know, when you self-publish, almost every self-published author has trouble making any money doing it. So Mm. it wasn't a way to earn a living. So I had, for the first time in 30 years of writing, I had to decide, do I give it up and just work? And uh, I was ready to do that, but I had finished a book. And so... um, I I decided, you know, the you'll see it online often where people will say, sign up for our email list and we will give you this free thing right now, right? And so you're trading a thing of value for somebody's email address. And I had a fiction email list and it's 66 people on it. And uh, I, I knew that if I published a book and I let those 66 people know, 10 of them would buy the book and it would, it would buy the coffee that I drank for maybe a week while I was writing. It wasn't going to be anywhere near what I needed it to be. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, well, I'm going to make one of those giveaways. I will take all this leftover research 
and I will write a document that I can give to them in exchange for their email address. I'll call it my five favorite New England myths. And I wrote four of the five, and I looked at the word count, and I realized, I think it was I mean, between between ten and fifteen thousand words. I mean, it was it was it was a novella, and uh, and and I was going to be asking them to read it on their mobile phone, you know, maybe an iPad, and Impossible. and that's you know pinching and zooming and tapping. It doesn't adapt to the screen. It's not fun. So, um, I, I clicked on the file and I dragged it to my trash can, and I was about to let go when I remembered my audiobook times mm. that that. I'm a reader, but I read through audiobooks because that's what's convenient to me and it's less frustrating. So I stopped and I said, well, I, I do have a microphone and I have GarageBand on my computer. So wh- why don't I try recording an audiobook version of this? Just me recording what I've written. That's, that was the goal at that point. Um, and the audio was really rough because my office was horsehair plaster, which is very reflective, a glass monitor in front of my microphone, um, hardwood floors. There was nothing soft in my office at all. And I knew nothing about acoustic treatment. So I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I put a little bit of music underneath it just to take some of the sting out of the audio. Mm-hmm. And I sent that file to a friend and I told him my plan, grand marketing scheme. Should I do it? And he said, no. Why not? He said, um, well, I thought it was, I thought that was the end. I thought it just wasn't good enough. And, <gasps> and we're done. And he said, no, this is a podcast. Now, this is March of 2015, and Serial had been climbing the charts or dominating them, but it was still fairly new. I think it came out in, I think, fall of 2014. Um, I don't think the idea had connected in my head yet that storytelling fit podcasting. For a really long time, a podcast was a technical thing that you had to understand technology to make them. Um, and to listen to them. You had to understand what really simple syndication was and how to subscribe to a podcast. You're right. It was complicated. It was. Complicated, now now yeah. you just tap a button and it's done. There's, it's, it's a no, no thought moment. So I fought him on it for a bit and then I said, all right, let's do that. I'm going to make a podcast. And in about 48 hours, for no reason other than I just wanted to get it over with, I, I, I named the podcast. I branded it. I'd been a designer. I could create some cover art. Um, I learned how to host audio files for podcasts and how to connect them to the various directories online. And I clicked publish on March 18th of 2015. And what kind of downloads did you get? Nine. And then how fast did it grow? For about a month, it was around, you know, 50 to a hundred a day. Oh, Um, that, that's pretty good. No, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, well, I had done a podcast before Lore that was just me and another friend talking about working from home. It was more of a roundtable discussion with two guys chatting about life at home as a homeworker. And I never did anything for that show other than show up, hit record, and then save the file to Dropbox. That was my involvement. So I didn't know anything about stats. I had no expectations. So nine, I don't know if nine was good or not, right? And I don't know if 50 to 100 a day is good or not. So Um, keep going. So then what happened? 50 to 100 a day. But I do know that most podcasts out there won't see a 1,000 downloads in their lifetime. Mm. So at some point it was, it was doing all right, but it was in the middle of April that I was on vacation. Um, and I checked my stats at the end of the day and it said 350, mm. which was, a, it was a significant jump from what I was used to. And I didn't understand why, but I, I figured maybe somebody posted a review somewhere and that drove traffic. The next day it was 850, uh. not cumulative. Just that day was 850. Huh. The next day was 3,500 and then 8,500 after that. And I remember, I remember those numbers very clearly because they were so bizarre and exponentially bigger and bigger. And what happened was... They were uh, bewitched. No, I wish. (laughs) Um, Apple had put lore into the new and noteworthy section. 
and front and center. It's a deep segment, so you have to click to see more sometimes, but I was right there before any of the scrolling, and people were going in and downloading it. Mm. And that was driving listeners in. Now, new and noteworthy is sometimes seen as like this magic pill for podcasters. If I can just get my show in there, yeah, everything's going to be okay. But I know people who see no bump at all, and I know people who see small bumps. Um, me, it was an enormous bump, but maybe because the show is new and it was still growing. Um, and the thing is, the show has to be good, right? Otherwise, they just try it and leave. That is true. But these people stuck around. And that's when I started to get the feeling that maybe I had hit on something that was bigger than I intended it to be. Mm. Yes. Yeah. What an exciting story. Oh, my goodness. Where are you finding your stories? How do you do your research? I read a lot. Do you go to libraries? Or are you doing it online? Or Well, these days, it's really easy to do library-level research online. Sure. Um, yeah. I can search through medical journals, dissertations, books. I can search for keywords inside those books and make it very quick mm. and build bibliog- bibliographies very quickly. Mm. So, um, and I, I try to source all my, my, my episodes. I, I write them like a history paper. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it, it has sections and I'm formatting it. The, the source material is formatted to Chicago style, if anybody wants to know. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah. Just, that's what I, I liked the appearance of it and I went with that. Um, yeah. And that's how I approach it. Most topics that I find for the first time, I have found in the middle of researching a current topic. It's the rabbit trail that that doesn't fit the narrative of the current episode, but it's a really good rabbit trail, and I'll set it aside on a list and come back to it later. And I've gotten good at mental markers, so I don't just put the name of the subject on a line. I might put a couple sources linked in there. I might write a sentence that describes the theme that that episode could focus on so that when I go back to it six months later, I can refresh my memory and pick right back up where I left off. And you're very organized, it sounds like. I'm a really organized person. Uh, Obsessive compulsive. Oh. Yeah. That's helpful. It is. Yeah. I mean, I'm a pack rat with data. Uh, And Evernote's great for that. It's a great tool. Um, You can give any note in there, like keywords or tags, they call them. So I'll tag it with the subject matter, the year, the location, so that later on when I'm thinking, what was that one story? I know it was in Massachusetts, and I know it was in the 1780s, but I don't remember the the thing. I can at least drill down and find some options to read through. Yeah, it helps. Wait, I have to go back to downloads again for one second. Yeah. How many? Where are you at now? Two, three, almost three years later now? Is that, um, two and a half years. Two and a half years, yeah. 92 million? <laughs> yeah. How does that play out like weekly? Well, I mean, I release the show every other week. Every so, other week. Okay, so, so, every, the, yeah. so, you know, on average, I'm getting, you know, around 5 million listens a month on, on, on two releases. Incredible. Yeah. Do you have a relationship with your audience? Yeah, absolutely. You know, live shows are really powerful. They don't fit every every podcast format, but this is storytelling, right? This was designed to just get in front of people and tell them stories. So I do live tours. Chad Lawson is this amazing classical pianist, you know, number one Billboard, iTunes, Amazon artist. Um, and he is one of my best friends. And so he plays on the show. He was your best friend before you did your no, show? No, we, we've met through this. And mm. we've just like, we're we're the same age within about a month. And we have the same interests. And we're just, we just want to get out there and make something great. There's no other ulterior motives. We want to tell a great story. And he's he's a brilliant musician. And he writes material for me. And then when we go on tour, there's a baby grand waiting for him on stage. Beautiful. And he sits there behind me and he plays piano, um, original compositions that he's he's put together and paced out for the show. And he knows when I'm going to, you know, the structure of lore is that there are sections and at the end of the sections it kind of fades out and there's a moment of silence mm-hmm. and then I pick up the next section. Like mm-hmm. he knows when to fade out and 
it's a really magical experience. So that's where that connection with the audience really happens. But I'm also, I'm a fan of social media. I'm on, yeah. I'm on Twitter mostly, but I okay. jump into Facebook from time to time. And uh, I try to interact with people, thank them for their for their compliments. And, and somebody reached out to me today and said, hey, you've got a new episode out, but you you swapped. I was talking about something that happened in the 1600s, and I referred to it as – no, it was the 1700s, and I referred to it as the 16th century, uh-huh. say the 18th, which nice. I'm always aware that that's a mistake I could make, and I don't normally make it. I made sure. it. I made sure, it this sure, time. Sure. Yeah. So I have to wait a couple of days to get home and re-record that, that segment. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to record it here? <laughs> no, no, that's okay. <laughs> Okay. In terms of getting word out about the show, did you do much of that? Or was it new and noteworthy that really sort of helped you ride that wave and now you've just maintained it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, people ask me often, how do you market a podcast? And I, the answer is always word of mouth. There's no other way. You can't advertise on somebody else's show. You can't – I mean, you can try those things. The thing that gets somebody interested enough to click subscribe on a show is a friend or family member telling them, you're going to like this because I know what you like. And so that's how shows grow. You have to ask your audience, if you love this show, tell other people that you know who like the subject matter. And I've done that since the beginning. And, and it just, that's how it spreads. There is a real love, though, of dark tales. and Yeah, and there horror. is. Yeah. yeah. Well, And that's the other thing. When you talk downloads, you know, anybody listening can say, well, 92 million. I mean, that, that's a great target. I, I want to hit that with my show. <laughs> but every show has a maximum audience hmm. size. You know, I, there are shows out there about dentistry. But that is not going to be a serial level podcast. Right. It can't. The, the target audience is not that big. Right, right. I happened to randomly pick a subject matter that's appealing to lots and lots of people. Yeah. Um, and so I don't want to have that survivor syndrome where I think my way is the only way. You have to have expectations that are set within your genre. So whatever that is, it, it changes what you should be aiming for. Now tell me about the phone call or how you were contacted for the t- TV show and, and what that experience was like. It must, I mean, you must be just delighted. Oh, it, it's – I mean, it, I never went into it thinking anything would happen. I mean, no, from, how could you? <laughs> four months into making the show, it was my full-time job. Yeah. You know, I, I was selling – Which is incredible in and of itself, yeah? Yeah. I mean, yeah. in 2015, very few people were making a living podcasting, period. Wait, let's talk about ads for that for yeah. one second. Yeah. How are you getting your ads? You are because you're independent. So I am. Are you developing relationships? Are you reaching out to advertisers? Are they coming to you or yeah, both? I, I do it all. You do it all. Yeah. I source. I source that. I sell the ads. I I invoice them. I follow up. And have have you ever been turned down, or was it pretty much? Oh yeah, we'll advertise on your show. The first the first batch of requesting when I didn't know how to reach out to people, I just mm. went to websites. You know, I, I knew okay, Casper advertises on a lot of podcasts. I'll go to the Casper website and I'll put something in their contact form. Like that's how I would do it. So now and you you learned that didn't work. A lot of people didn't respond. Some companies said we don't handle our ad sales for podcasts. They're handled by this agency here. Here's mm. their contact info. Mm-hmm. And that's where I work through now is is a number of agencies. Okay. Oh, okay. And so you just go through the agency and they hook you up with some ads. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, and, and I'm picky about it. I want, I want the ad to relatively fit the subject matter, you know, or, or what my audience is interested in. I want to, I don't want to force them to hear an ad for something that they'll never be interested in. It's bad for the, it's bad for the sponsor. It's bad for them. And then it's, it's bad for me. Yeah. I reflect so, about it. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So four months in, I yes, was yes. full time yes. um, selling enough ads to pay the bills, was able to quit the design job. And it was a month after that that I, I, I – somebody followed me on Twitter and their profile said Executive Producer History Channel. And that was the first time I thought to myself, huh, 
I mean, I, it's kind of a history show. I wonder if there's a TV thing in here. And uh, I reached out and said hello. And I said, you know, just want to thank you for the follow. I hope you're enjoying the show. I don't do that all the time, but I did this time. <laughs> Smart move. Yeah. And, um, and he, he said, yeah, I absolutely love it. Let's talk sometime. And that was an exciting thing to hear. Uh, it took a while for that talk to happen. But finally, when we got on the phone, um, it was August of 2015. So we're, you know, five months into the show. Incredible, yeah. And, uh, and, and we, we talked about various visions for how lore could be adapted for TV. And sometime in October of that year, I signed on with that production company. Um, there were a lot of offers. I had about two dozen emails oh. um, from different production companies. But they run the gamut of experience and um, connections because connections are big. Having a door that's open for you in a network is really important. So if a company only had ever done Yahoo videos, that was probably not my best option. But, you know, this production company is run by, you know, the former head of NBC, Ben Silverman. Um, Howard Owens used to run A&E Networks. Uh, no, Nat Geo. Sorry, Nat Geo. And the, and the person who reached out to me actually had, had been part of the team that started Face Off, which was this sci-fi uh, makeup artist contest show that's run for 12 plus years. So... I knew I was in good hands. I had some talented people and also people that were deep in the industry and could open doors that others couldn't. So I connected with them and we knew right away we needed to have some sort of a creative partner with us. Another production company that was good at telling scary stories. And we pitched it to a few of them. We talked with them, had a lot of great offers, but in the end, um, Gail Ann Hurd's company, Valhalla, was the perfect team. Uh, they make The Walking Dead, mm -hmm. which is this tiny little show that nobody's heard of. Right. right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. No. 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 Zombies. Um, what? I don't yeah. Know. Something about zombies. Yeah. And they, I guess they walk. Yes. Yeah. And brains. Yeah. yeah. Brains. So um, once they were part of the team, it was a matter of just pitching it to networks. So that happened. This evolution between the Twitter reach out to pitching it to networks. What? How long was that process? We were pitching in. I want to say November of 2016. So this moved very quickly. So quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. I mean, for the day one of podcasts to new and noteworthy to TV show, it's very quick. It is. It, did it just shock the hell out of you? Oh, absolutely. You can't look back on something like that, a timeline like that, and say, let me boil that down to a formula that I can repeat. <laughs> no. There's no way you can repeat that. No, it's, you know, it's I can, lightning. My story yeah. can be inspirational, but it can't be instructional. Agree. So Agree. It, it just yeah. it doesn't happen. Now, that said... I seem to have opened a door that a lot more podcasts are walking through now. Mm. And so hearing about more and more shows that are moving toward television. And I wasn't the first. You know, Stuff You Should Know, Try Their Hand at TV, This American Life, yes. did a season mm -hmm. on, on Showtime. Yeah. It was beautiful. Okay, amazing. Okay, we, we only have a few minutes to go, if you can believe it. I well, want to get back to witches. Yeah. But this witch story has a different ending than the, the typical witch stories that we hear. Yeah. Um, this comes from your Trick or Treat episode set one. And I'm talking about Grace Sherwood. Who, oh, yeah. Who shares in common the same ending as uh, our half-hanged gal? Mary Webster. Mary Webster. Yeah. Now, the Mary Webster survival story, let's let's just say, if, if you don't mind me cutting to the chase, both these women were accused of witchcraft. Both of them were tried. Both of them were ultimately had to prove themselves. I mean, I think once once you go through the ducking, which is, you know – if you sink and drown, you, you weren't a witch. But if you float, you are. Let's just tell the Grace Sherwood yeah. story. Because, because, because um, all of us in, in history class have heard the story where in order to prove you were not a witch, you had to survive um, You know, having weights on your body or a Bible around you, a heavy Bible around your neck or your your hands and legs tied up, thrown into the water. If you survived that drowning, you were not a witch. No, if you survived the drowning, you were. 
excuse me, if you survived the drowning, it, you were a witch. Right. If you died, you weren't, but too bad you're dead. Exactly. But in the case of Grace Sherwood, right. the miraculous did seem to happen, yeah. although I have a theory. Yeah. But well, let's tell the story. People the end, say yeah. it's illogical, this whole floating, not floating thing. The reason is because they believe that witches were so immune to Christian baptism. So she had a Bible tied around her neck before she was put in. They're so immune to baptism that their body repels the water. So if they float, they're a witch, right? So there is a weird superstitious logic to it. She goes under the water, manages to untie the Bible from around her neck and untie her hands somehow and swims to shore. And they don't execute her after that. They Which actually, I was surprised yeah, by. Yeah, I'm surprised by too. They put her in jail. And I think... For uh, years. For, it seemed like that. there's kind of like this gap on the public record where she doesn't show up. And then she shows up and pays off a bunch of property tax debt and other things. It's almost as if, okay, I'm back. I'm going to get back into my life. And uh, she returns to society. But and it, lives to a ripe old age. She does. Absolutely. And it's it's one of those success stories that I just absolutely love because here she is facing all of those social elements of her day. And, you know, she was just this woman that all of the neighbors hated because she was outspoken. She defended herself. She might not have been as religious as them. And so they wanted to get rid of her. And in the, at the end of this execution attempt, in a sense, she rises up against it. And also what was sort of wondrous about the story is she had gone to trial three times before that, I believe, and every single time she was said to be innocent. Yeah. And then finally they're like, no, you can't be innocent. We're going after you anyway. They give her the whole body check. Yeah. And then they throw her in a boat and she goes out into the middle of, of the water. You know, you know what my theory is? Mm. That the, the sheriff or the, or the authority in charge that was out there with her loosely tied her hands and arms so that she could get away like he was on her side kind of helped her by yes. aiding her yeah yeah rope rope gets it gets stiff and and it swells underwater and mm. you know she would have had a really hard time getting out of that so mm. it is it is easy to think maybe she was helped in some way maybe yeah i'd like to think so because a lot of these stories you know kind of look at the dark side of humanity and that one kind of makes me feel like you know there's some hope right yes yeah absolutely and mary webster's story from episode 12 half hanged is very much that same. That's one of my favorites because there's that element of victory in there. Pure victory on her own. Right. And what I love about Mary Webster's story is, you know, it's the same. She's tried and acquitted, comes back to town victorious. Somebody gets sick and is dying. So they just mob mentality, drag her out of her house one night and she's taken to the tree and she's hanged. And when she stops moving, they cut her down in the snow and they leave. And then the next morning she gets up and walks away. Stunning. And it's this... I like to call it the slap into the face of of her society and all of the norms around her. And mortality. Yeah. But what's brilliant about it all is that centuries later, her descendant is Margaret Atwood, who is currently in our society, (laughs) slapping us in the face again. It's like this legacy (laughs) that has been passed down to her and, Mm. and she's doing it. She's doing it again. It's awesome. I here, love it. here to surviving. Yeah. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you guys got to check out Lore if you haven't, if you're some of the millions that have not. Thank you so much, Aaron Mankey, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. And the best place people can go would be yes. theworldoflore.com. And from there, you can find links to the TV show, the podcast, the book series. Thank you again. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. 
Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. That's right. The Lady Ang podcast is turning 100. We have laughed, cried, giggled, unfiltered through 100 episodes, and we want you to join us for our 100th birthday extravaganza. We're looking back at all the best moments, the funniest moments, the best advice we got from our 100 guests, and we want you to join us. So come find us on Tuesday, and you can find us exclusively at podcastone.com or the new Podcast One app. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so we can feel famous. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.